Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. We are looking at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. That's the Revised Common Lectionary. I think, I think Alan's going to go back a little bit prior to that. But this is for Trinity Sunday, and this is, of course, one of our favorite verses. Yes, indeed. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Our, our gospel lesson for this week comes from Matthew's story of Jesus' resurrection, and it focuses on what we know as the Great Commission, where Jesus instructs his disciples to make disciples of all nations. I don't think it's any accident that this text is the gospel reading for Trinity Sunday. Um, I think it's important to note, however, that while the word Trinity never occurs in the New Testament, the building blocks of that theology are woven into the very fabric of the New Testament from start to finish. And this is one of the key passages where that foundation mm-hmm. is laid. Mm-hmm. Now, since we didn't discuss Matthew's account of the empty tomb this year, I thought it might be helpful to note the context for our gospel lesson for this Trinity Sunday. Uh, Matthew's account of the empty tomb is similar to Mark's, but Matthew clearly adds his own details and his own interpretation. Uh, One significant element is the presence of the guard of soldiers at the tomb. This changes Matthew's version of the women discovering the empty tomb because of the guards, they're not going to anoint his body and they don't discuss how to open the tomb. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, Matthew is the only one to recount the narrative that although the guards saw the same thing that the women did, they reported it. When they reported it to the chief priests, they bribed the guards with a large sum of money to report that Jesus' disciples stole his body. Only Matthew reports that mm-hmm, whole episode. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's amazing that they saw the same things that the women did and that these soldiers, I mean, the, the word is soldier, so it, it seems to suggest they were Roman soldiers, not temple guards. I, yeah, yeah. But they reported it to the chief priests, which I find just almost astonishing that they would do that. Yeah, interesting. Well, and I, I keep wondering about the report. It's almost like they needed somebody else to corroborate mm. that the what the women saw, or maybe it had something to do with th- th- that they were they were Roman. It was the Gentiles that saw it too, or something. I'm not sure. Well, and to me, I, I've always seen this as it's part of the conflict between Matthew's community and the Jewish synagogue, and that's why Matthew emphasizes the whole point about posting the guards in the end of chapter 27, yep. and then we have this story in the mm-hmm. empty tomb narrative. Now, another significant element in Matthew's story of the empty tomb is the way in which it is revealed. Um, Matthew reports a second earthquake. You may recall there was an earthquake attending Jesus' mm-hmm. death. Uh, and this earthquake was the result of the angel of the Lord rolling away the stone. Um, and, of course, this corresponds to the signs that attend Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, according to Matthew mm-hmm. 27, 51 to 53. Um, in Matthew's gospel, the angel's message to the women is virtually the same as it is in Mark's gospel, that Jesus, the crucified one, ton estauromenon, and we talked about that when, when we dealt with Mark's um, resurrection narrative. Um, the idea is that it's a, perfect, it's a perfect participle, which means that crucifixion is a part of who Jesus is. He's, mm, he's continually mm. known as the crucified one yeah. even after his resurrection. Yeah, but he the the message is that Jesus, the crucified one, was no longer in the tomb because he'd been raised from the dead by God, 
And furthermore, the angel commissions the women to give this news to disciples and to instruct them that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. Now, in contrast to Mark's account, which we recall, that concludes with right. the women saying nothing out of fear. In Matthew, the women leave the tomb not only with fear, but also with joy as they mm-hmm. ran to tell the disciples. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're running to carry out their commission. Right, right. At this point, Matthew tells us that they met Jesus, and he repeated the instructions, except he, in, in Jesus' instructions, he says, uh, tell my brothers that I will mm-hmm. meet them. And so this sort of resolves the tension of the disciples' desertion in Matthew's gospel, mm-hmm. because it implies that they're still his disciples, they're still his brothers, and he has not rejected them. Right. Yeah, the brothers really emphasizes that, yeah. that kind of closeness, that intimacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's, and it's one of, the thing, one of the things in Matthew's gospel, we found it in Mark as well, but there's a saying where Jesus talks about, you know, Jesus' mothers and brothers, mother and brothers come to me, come to forget him, and, and he has the saying that my mother and my brothers and my sisters right. are those who do the will of God. And so, you know, this kind of connects with that. I yeah, think. I agree. So then after recounting the episode with the guard, Matthew moves on to our lesson for today, what we know as the Great Commission. And this passage pulls together and summarizes a great deal of theological development. That's something we may or may not catch just right on the just uh, on the surface, superficial reading uh, of it. I agree. I agree. And of course, we all love... I mean, most people know that this is in Matthew. Most yeah. people are familiar with this passage. But to think about how come it's there and why it's there and what's gone on, I right. think you're right. People don't right. don't pay attention to Well, it. I think we should note, as Gene Boring reminds us in his Gospel of Matthew commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible, that the question of the mission to all nations occupies much of the narrative of Acts chapters 1 through 15. Yes. They're working through that over time. Absolutely. Right? And so that Matthew could compress that process into um, one scene, basically, in, mm-hmm. in these few verses, bears witness to the theological nature of all the Eastern narratives in the Gospels. Um, and so we should see, right. I, I think we've talked about this before, about how they don't line up in terms of the details. They reflect the tradition of the church and their preaching and convictions about Jesus more so than sort of a literal recounting of events. And so um, really, we, and, and by the time of the writing of the Gospels, you know, these these traditions that reflect the convictions of the church had been formulated for decades mm-hmm. after Jesus' right. resurrection. And so, you know, one of the things that Boring wants to say is that even even the material in Matthew's gospel and the other gospels that it, that takes place before the resurrection is affected by the resurrection. They, they're, they're seeing that through the lens of right. the resurrected Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's important to point out. Yeah. I don't know that we always... <clears throat> always look at it that way no. I, I mean i think we forget there's even the amount of time between right. when the events happen and when these are written i mean uh, 40 or 50 years exactly right? and and that 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 does so many things well a it allows them to write these beautifully carefully constructed sure. gospels of nothing sure. else right sure. so well and and the traditions the traditions date earlier than than that but mm-hmm. the traditions have been undergoing development mm-hmm. through this time mm-hmm. not a development i think that means that that they're sort of creating stories you know out of thin air Mm-mm. but just a development in terms of their understanding of what, yeah. what is the significance of these events absolutely and, and how they understand them how absolutely. they put them together yeah, yeah. No. and that's i mean uh, to me that's such fascinating study um to process you know to process what if i were there what if i experienced mm-hmm. this to stepping away 
it's, it's kind of the historian's job in a way is to now how, what, what did I just, what did right. I witness 30 years ago? What did I witnessed 40 years ago? Yeah. How, how does that make sense within the world I'm in now? And sure. um, yeah, it's cool stuff. Well, and it's part of the reason why Rudolf Bultmann sort of famously and yes. controversially started his theology of the New Testament by saying that the New Testament essentially bears witness to the church, not to Jesus. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I would put it with quite such an either or. I think the church's witness to Jesus is an authentic one and a, and a true and reliable one. But I mean, he has a point because right. the, 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 yeah. the New Testament contains the words of the church right i mean we we believe they are the gospels are are recounting words of right. jesus but jesus didn't write any of this right is the church right. speaking about jesus it's, it's such interesting philosophy and this goes way off but i might have family that are full of scrapbookers right, right. so how many things do we do to then take pictures so that we can remember it later. But then the event, instead of just being in the experience, (laughs) becomes all about creating a memory for later. And it's a really interesting thing to balance is being in, I I can see being at the time, what that experience is being 30, 40, 50 years away from it. And, you know, thinking of our own lives in that term. So it's really cool stuff to me. And I I agree with Boltmann that he has some interesting things to say. Well, Boltmann's, I I would say Boltmann's theology of the New Testament is a wonderfully written document, even though it's older. Yeah. I I enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed working my way through Boltmann's theology of the New Testament and and really appreciated his insights. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I I wouldn't put it quite so starkly. Right. I I think the church's witness to Jesus is authentic and reliable myself. I agree. I agree. You can't, I agree, but I think it's important that he did the work, right? Right. It's important for us to to have that awareness too. Yeah, yeah. So then Matthew begins our gospel lesson with the statement that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them in Matthew 28:16. And the first point we need to note here is that the disciples apparently accepted the testimony of the women, which we may not it's expect amazing. if we're hearing echoes of Luke's right. gospel, right? Right. Um, so they, they accepted the testimony of the women. That that's the implication because they went to Galilee, right? Mm-hmm. So we should also note that in Ma- Matthew, as in Mark, Jesus' appearance to the disciples occurs only in Galilee, not right. in Jerusalem, right. Right. which Luke has, Luke and Acts, mm-hmm. and nor in Jerusalem and Galilee, which is what we find in John's gospel. Right. In Matthew and Mark, it's only in Galilee that Jesus appears or in Mark is going to appear. Now, as we have discussed earlier in connection with the Sermon on the Mount and the Transfiguration, the image of a mountain is significant in Matthew as a place of revelation. It's where Jesus presents his authoritative interpretation of what it meant to fulfill all righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. And it's the place where God reveals Jesus' identity um, as his son to Mm -hmm. Peter, James, and John at the Transfiguration. And so here, the revelation is twofold. First, Jesus is revealed as the one having all authority in heaven and on earth. And then secondly, the, the, the disciples are commissioned to disciple all nations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a question. I, I ran into a commentary that suggested that this was the same mountain, but that seemed to be... Yeah, there's no way to... To tell no, that. I think that's stretching it. I think so. Well, that was my impression. Yeah. It was stretching yeah. it. I didn't know how 
common was that assumption or that practice? I mean, I, there may be some people out there who make it because I've, I, I know, I mean, like W.D. Davies and Dale Allison in their commentary, they specifically say something against it. But so there must be some, some, yeah. some out there. But I, I, I think that misses the point. I think the misses so the too. point is the point is not which mountain he's on. The point is that yeah. he's on the mountain of Revelation and got it. And you know, Davies and Allison are gonna Davies and Allison are gonna are gonna say you know this this reflects their Moses typology that they see in Jesus throughout. Yeah. Matthew's oh, gospel. yeah. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. So then Matthew tells us that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now that's the new RSV. Yes, yes. and. It, I, I have to be honest, I've read this so many times, but the some doubted kind of is something I kind of jumped over because I'm so excited mm-hmm. about the commission mm-hmm. that you missed this. You missed this. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. And and you know, again, we're we're sort of used to the doubt from 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 for example, Luke's gospel, right? Because mm-hmm. it takes them a while for it to really kick in. And and maybe even from John's gospel, from from Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. But um in, in Matthew's gospel, we, I think we should see first of all they worship. That's their that's their response. Is they worship, mm-hmm. but some doubted. And and the problem is that this is worded rather ambiguously mm-hmm. in the Greek text. Okay. So first of all, I think it's important to note that the disciples respond to seeing the risen Jesus in the same way as the women. You know, we didn't go into this, but in 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 the earlier section where Jesus appeared to them, they worshipped him. It's the it's the verb proskuneo. Yeah. And, right. and so it's the same verb here. And it's also the same response that they make to Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm mm. in Matthew 14, 33. Those in the boat worshipped him. It's the same verb, proskuneo, saying, truly, you are the son of God. And, and again, here, Gene Boring suggests that the gospel tradition blends pre-Easter and post-Easter elements because the whole tradition was permeated with faith in the risen Lord. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, there's some people, you know, when I worked in the, in the Baptist world, there were some people who really were offended by that because they wanted to ensure the literal factuality of everything in the gospels. But I can't see really any, what is the objection to say that, to say that, that, that the church viewed the whole gospel tradition, um, through their lens of faith in the risen Lord. I mean, I, th- I think that's a given. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So now the English Bible tradition has also been varied in the translation of pros ekunesan hoi de adistasan. So it's they worshipped, but they doubted, literally. Oh, so <laughs> literally, there's worship and doubt together. They worshiped, but they doubted, and that's and so. I the, like that. So the the problem is is that it is the Greek uses the definite article hoi mm-hmm. as a pronoun. Now that's not unusual. That that happens pretty frequently in the New Testament. But what it does is it leaves ambiguous the question of who was doubting. Day. Yeah, who's who's day. So yeah. huh. so so was it others? I mean, right. are there some is that it, worshipped and some that doubted and didn't worship or? Did the worshipers also doubt? Right. Which I like. <laughs> well, I mean, so, yeah, you've got three options here. Um, the, the NIV and the new RSV says they worshipped him, but some doubted, which seems to imply that there were other disciples mm-hmm. besides the 11. So the 11 worshipped him, but other disciples right. doubted, right? Um, the, the Good News Translation in the Revised English Bible says some of them doubted. Oh, so this uh-huh. suggests that some of the 11 worshipped Jesus, but some of the 11 doubted. Um, the New American Bible and the new RSV updated edition oh, says they, they worshipped him, but they, they doubted, doubted Ooh. which suggests that all of the 11 
both worshipped him and doubted. Now, um, uh, just Davies and Allison, Davies and Allison, in their commentary, prefer some of them, meaning some of the eleven doubted and some of them worshipped. Right. They think that makes the most logical sense. It's apparently it's the most prevalent historical interpretation of this. But I like what I, I like Boring suggesting that the that that the idea that all of the eleven worshipped him, but they all doubted. Yeah. Um, it, reflects the fact that in Matthew's gospel, discipleship always consists of faith mixed with doubt. He says it this way, the same elements of worship, doubt, and little faith in here in the church after Easter as before. That that phrase, you have little faith, is characteristic in Matthew's gospel. And so, you know, I think, I I like that idea that Matthew is trying to show that, hey, the disciples aren't perfect even in the face of the risen Jesus. They worshiped him, but they doubted also. And they, it's okay that their faith wasn't perfect. Yeah, I like that. I, I yeah. do like that. I think that would be a really, that'd be a really fun way to preach this, yeah, actually, definitely. because I think it, it matches so much of our own experience. Well, because he's going to go on and entrust the mission of the world to these disciples who worshipped him, but also doubted. Right, right. <laughs> well, and it, to me, it also, when you think about, if you think about that faith is a journey, mm-hmm. you're seeing them still on this journey. Absolutely. I mean, we always think... We're always on that journey. There's always this concept of the perfect disciple, or you either believe or you don't, but if you do this, even the disciples are on a journey, and that's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah, Actually, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I agree. Now, it's important to note that Jesus only speaks, and only Jesus speaks in this scene. Mm-hmm. The first part of the revelation on the mountain is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think we're meant to be reminded here of the temptation scene where the tempter offered Jesus all mm-hmm. the kingdoms of the earth. But here, as a result of his willingness to fulfill all righteousness, that is the righteousness mm-hmm. of God's kingdom, God has given him all authority not only on earth, but also in heaven. Mm-hmm. In other words, here in Matthew, Jesus is not only vindicated by his resurrection, but he's also exalted to the position of pantocrator. And, you know, again, that's not the word used here. It is a word that is used, I believe, in Revelation. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the idea of the one ruling over the whole cosmos at the right hand of God is an idea that is found in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. In Mm -hmm. Ephesians 1, in Philippians 2, the famous Christ hymn in Philippians 2, Colossians chapter 1, we also have the idea. And even in 1 Peter chapter 3, we have this idea of Jesus being exalted over all Mm -hmm. things, all powers. And, and so um, Boring says it this way, the lowly son of man has been enthroned as the exalted son of man. And he refers to Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Mm. And a lot of people do because the mm. ideas are very cl- closely, especially the Septuagint of Daniel 7, 13, and 14. You have this idea of the one like the son of man who appears before the agent of days. To him is given authority. And all the nations of the earth and all the tribes and all uh, the language languages worship him. And his authority, it, the, the English translations usually say dominion here, his authority is an eternal or an everlasting authority that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Well, we've got, we've got so many connections here. Son of man, um, he's given authority, all the nations of the earth, uh, um, an, a, an everlasting authority that will not pass away, a kingdom that will not be destroyed, you know, and, and 
I mean, to me, I think it seems to be virtually a, a unanimous consensus among New Testament scholars of Matthew, especially that this is the Matthew is framing this scene intentionally as a as a as a fulfillment of that vision mm-hmm. in Daniel, that yeah. Jesus that is sense. the one like the Son of Man who is given authority mm. over all nations, over not only all nations, but over all the earth and over all the heaven. And and he is the one who receives this everlasting authority, and mm. he is the one who rules over this kingdom that has no end. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, to me, I think that just is... I mean, I don't think you can say it's indisputable, but it, it comes very well, close I, to being. I think that's... Uh, I, I would not have thought of that before you introduced it here to me specifically. I, I wouldn't have. But when you introduce it and when I think about Matthew and um, when, when, you, when you really look at all the times we see this New Testament, and, and of course the letters are written prior to this, mm-hmm. uh, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. This makes a lot of sense. And it, 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 kind, of, it kind of adds this wonderful conclusion to Matthew yes, too. Indeed. Mm-hmm. That's, indeed, indeed. And that's part of the point that a lot of people make is that this brings Matthew's theological project to um, really quite a, a beautiful conclusion. It does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, as a result of his exaltation, then Jesus instructs his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, in verses 19 and 20. Now, it seems to be fitting that Jesus launches the mission to all nations from a high mountain in Galilee, mm-hmm. which is yeah, known as Galilee of the Nations, only in Matthew 4.15 oh. in the Gospel tradition, huh. where it's citing uh, Isaiah 9.1, or it's actually Isaiah 8.23 mm-hmm. from the Septuagint. So now, in Matthew, we may be familiar that earlier Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But here, that mission is expanded to include all the nations. And there's been some debate about, does that include Israel? And I think, again, most people say, yes, that includes Israel. It would be... It would be it would not be common in that day for Israel to consider themselves as one of the ethne, right? Mm-hmm. The ethne are the others. Right. Israel is the people, the laos, mm-hmm. the people of God. The other nations are the ethne. Right. But there are places where, especially in the Septuagint, where Israel is listed as among the nations, as among the mm. ethne. Yeah. So mm. um, th- there's been some d- debate about that, but I think it, it's very clear that Again, the mission to the to the lost sheep of the house of Israel is expanded to include all the nations. So the question is: Is Israel being replaced? Are they being excluded? Are they being included? And I don't see a replacement issue here. I really don't see the theme of replacement here. I've always I've always sort of had a trouble with the idea that the church replaces Israel as the true people of God. I really don't see that myself. Yeah, what I yeah. see is in the New Testament, the people of God is expanded to yeah, include that's all I, those. I, but I, I've who heard both ha- share the faith of Abraham. I've heard both. Oh yeah, right, of course. right, yeah, and and yeah. but no, I agree with the second with that it's an expansion right yeah, so yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. now and the way that w- in which they're to carry out this mission is specifically by baptizing in the name and note that it's singular not in the names mm-hmm. of the father the yeah, son and the holy spirit really, but in the really name important. of the father Father's the son, son and the holy spirit um and and of course baptizing marks one com- one's commitment to the path of discipleship as well as one's identity as belonging to the community of faith they're also to carry out the mission by teaching and the content of their teaching is to be 
to obey everything that I have commanded you, which is interesting because the language of commanding is not language that is used of Jesus in the gospel mm-hmm. tradition. Uh, and again, I think this reminds us then of the comparison between Jesus and, mm-hmm. Moses, and Moses because the verb entello or command typically refers to Moses' instructions in the gospel tradition. Mm-hmm. Now, in Matthew's gospel, then hearing Jesus' words and acting upon them is the pattern for discipleship, as Jesus pointed out in his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, yes, where he contrasts yes. the person who builds the, the house on, on sand versus the one who builds the house on yep, the rock. Right? Yep, yep. And so building the house on the rock is, is hearing Jesus' words and acting upon them. And that seems to be also reflected in this statement, to obey everything that yeah, I have commanded yeah. you. Yeah. It, again, it just reminds me of how what an um, amazing writer Matthew mm-hmm. is to be able to pull in all these details into mm-hmm. this is one short uh, few verses um, and, and concluding all these things that we would hear, you know, this this tie into Matthew or to Moses, which is, is I think important for this gospel, mm-hmm. this, this, um, this call to do, to follow, to respond. Um, the, the, the the tie into the Trinity, right? Sure. The Father, Son, sure. And, and, and the singular, the very intentionality mm-hmm. of that. How mm-hmm. cool is that? Mm-hmm. So there's just so much that goes on in this few mm-hmm. verses, you yeah. know? So I, I, when, when Alan told me, I had, what are we, what are we, what are we working on this week? And I'm looking, I'm like, oh, it's four verses. And I'm realizing <laughs> that there's so much going on in these four verses. Well, Matthew's summarizing his whole gospel. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's rich. Yeah. Now we should note there is no ascension in Matthew's right. gospel, which I'm, I must confess, I was surprised when I really saw that when, in my preparation for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I'd never even thought about that. Right. I just take the assumption, the ascension for granted. I just assume, well, there's an ascension. There's no ascension in Matthew's gospel. Mm-hmm. Rather, what we have is Jesus offering what Gene Boring calls the worshiping slash wavering community of disciples because they worship, but they doubt it, right? Right. To whom he has entrusted the mission to all nations, the assurance of his continued presence among them. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And of course, when we talked about the infancy narratives in Matthew, we talked about how, you know, one of the focal points of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is God who is with us. He right. is the Emmanuel. And, and right. that was cited in the passage about Joseph's dream, right, right at the beginning right. of, of Matthew's gospel. And then we have this, I am with you, that serves as a kind of, they serve as bookends, you know, marking the beginning and the ending of the gospel as well. Right, so right. So this, this is this, another aspect aspect of Matthew's um, um, theological uh, interpretation of Jesus that that is brought out here. Yeah, yeah, no, this it makes sense when when we put it in the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, thinking about our previous conversation about um, about the resurrected body of Jesus, there's no interest in those kind of questions here. Um, because what matters is that the mm-hmm. risen and living Lord is with the community of those right. who seek to follow him and who seek to carry out the mission he's entrusted to them. Right. And that's all that really matters. Yeah. Them, right? yeah, right, right. Now, so the reason for the selection of this text for Trinity Sunday by the Revised Common Lectionary is because it is one of the key New Testament passages where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are linked together. Um, and in fact, apart from the baptism, I don't know that there is another text in Matthew's gospel where that is that occurs, mm-hmm. right? Now, of course, this bears witness then to the New Testament conviction that the one they encountered in Jesus 
and in the presence of the Holy Spirit was the one true and living God affirmed from the beginning in the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. You know, it's, right. there, there's no, it's not a different God. It's not something else that they're encountering the one true and living God in the presence of Jesus and in the presence of the Spirit. And we've discussed before that while it's clear that the New Testament authors do not use the language of Trinity explicitly, they do not hesitate to speak of their experience of the divine in their lives in terms of right. God the Father, Jesus the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. While at the same time, you know, they can use this threefold language right. while at the same time using languages that preserves right. the fundamental conviction that God is one. Right. And that is just, that is, that is something that happens from the very beginning. Right. As, I, as I mentioned a couple of years ago, and we, we looked at uh, Trinity Sunday, um, um, we see this clearly demonstrated in the letters of Paul, beginning with 1 Thessalonians, which was very likely the first New Testament book to be written about mm-hmm. 20 years right. after Jesus was crucified. Um, and, and, and yet at the same time, while it's, it's something that's already written in to 1 Thessalonians, in the greeting, God the Father and Jesus Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, they're just associated right, with one another. Exactly, exactly. Very naturally, and almost right. as if it's just a given. 20 years after Jesus died, right? Right. Um, at the same time, there's no theological argument to justify this language. Um, the, about the closest you can come to to that is is in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, where Paul talks about how, yeah, we know there are many gods and many lords, but for us there is one God and one Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really, I mean, he really doesn't, nobody goes into any kind of right. theological rationale to explain, you know, normally when Paul is trying right. to trying to bolster an argument, he quotes scripture to support his theological points. Nobody does this well, with Trinity, like, Trinitarian language in the New Testament. I feel like in there, and, and Calvin always explains this, is this is just how God works. And there's... Nobody questions it because that's just how God works. I would works. say this was just how they experienced exactly. God. Exactly. Yes. And and yeah. and so you don't have to explain things if it's already known. You don't have to explain how to use a hammer unless you don't know how right. to use one. Right. You know? right. And and so I think, you know, there's folks out there, the the, the non Trinitarians who say, Oh, well, it's not explicitly drawn out. I'm like but when you read when you read scripture you can see how God works in this way, well, and mean, there's no need to have. What we do see in this passage is a robust understanding of Jesus' role in fulfilling the work of God's kingdom. Exactly. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Exactly. And yet that creates no conflict with the authority of God because it is from God that he has received this authority, right. and it is in the service of God's purposes that he exercises this authority. Right. And, of course, we will see that, as Paul will later add, or earlier Paul earlier adds in 1 Corinthians, Jesus will one day surrender that authority back to the Father so that God may be all in all, as he says in 1 Corinthians mm-hmm. fifteen twenty eight. So, uh, you know, there's no tension between Jesus having all, no, all authority in heaven and on earth right. and, and, you know, the idea that he is exercising that authority, you know, on, because God has given it to him in in the in the accomplishment of God's purpose, and he is going to surrender that authority back to God ultimately. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there, there's just, there's no conflict between it. Right, right. So, right. Th- you know, yeah, they they may not be saying Trinity, but they're they're yeah. explaining Trinity exactly, Ex- exactly. They're yes. they're they're defining Trinity exactly, yeah. exactly. 
Um, and so, you know, yeah, we should not see an explicit theology of Trinity here, and nor even should we see an explicit theology of the deity of Christ. But what we see is these just incredibly powerful affirmations. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Right. Wow. You know, Jesus is the one who is with you always. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in the name Singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, which is super wow. cool. Yeah, right. right? Mm-hmm. So we see these building blocks for the theological developments laid down. They, they would come later, right? Right. In the New Testament passages like this one. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Well, thank you, Alan. And we'll um, have a nice segue to talk about um, in the Reformation um, how this is used to um, for Trinity Sunday as well and to justify the Trinity. Thanks, Christine. Yeah. Hi friends, we're back and we're going to um, take up on the segue that Christy introduced that um, how Calvin and some of the other uh, reformers used this passage to argue for the doctrine of Trinity. So Christy, tell us what you found. Yeah, so this um, this is heavily used by Calvin and the Institutes, and you can just find this whole section on Trinity that he continues to cite this passage. So, um, absolutely, it's 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 one of the ones that they they focus on, um, and the basic um, tenet this. Trinity is something we kind of take for granted in the modern church, but it has been attacked at times in the history of the church, and it, it does today too, right? I mean, we obviously mm-hmm. have like an entire um, groups of, of Christians or nominal Christians that um, that are anti-Trinitarian, right. but um, and it of course comes up in the Reformation as well. Um, but Calvin notes, um, despite this proof text, he does consider this a proof text for the Trinity. Um, but beyond that, it's the way God operates in the world is mm-hmm. in Trinity. Mm-hmm. Calvin, I like that phrase. Yeah. Calvin says, quote, God is understood a single, simple essence in which we comprehend three persons or hypostases. Yeah. So Calvin, following just general statement, spends a good t- deal of time showing how God operates in three persons. Because fa- faith is one, God as revealed here, that essence of God is in three persons. Right. Right. And I, I, this is so interesting because um, I remember um, one of my uh, friends at the seminary was was really, really struggling um, in making sure that Trinitarian language was just right and how she was describing um, of the three the three persons. And she was dividing it out so it, it, it didn't sound like one. I remember oh, yeah. and got caught for that several times in sermon preparation. So this l- language is has to be very carefully it's crafted. Tricky. Yeah. yeah, it's tricky. So now... Um, it's important for the reformers to preserve um, the doctrine of Trinity. Um, it is the orthodoxy of the church. And that correct belief was essential to the proper functioning. And again, well, and yeah, yeah, I think that's something that maybe we have gotten away from a little bit. Um, I, you know, in our day, we, we don't want to be just rigid about orthodoxy. But it's, it's almost as if we kind of almost um, have an anything goes mentality mm-hmm. and we forget that, that the proper functioning of the church depends upon right belief. Exactly. And, you know, our faith is about more than doctrine. 
it, it is about life. It is about a lifestyle. It is about how we live. But it, we certainly cannot just say doctrine is irrelevant or doctrine is yeah. just neutral. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you do you know, right, the right thing. Right, right, you yeah. have to. You have to, you, they go together. Doing right. the right thing and believing the right thing go together. They do, they do. And, and of course, the Reformation, this is, this is a big deal. They, because what they find, of course, is often beliefs will then lead away to various practices that right. are actually very, very dangerous. And right. um, so, as I put here, proper faith was essential for the functioning of society. And remember, church and state are united mm-hmm. together, and therefore those outside the faith were condemned. And this manifested itself into Protestant and Roman Catholic camps. But there always seemed to be at least some hope of reconciliation and a reunification mm-hmm. of Christendom. Um, and even though one might say, well, effectually the Reformation started and when Luther put up his 95 theses in 1517 and it divided it luther actually thought in those debates that that there was there was still a unity he did not mm-hmm. see that as the break that right. history did later he was re- seeking to reform the church right. from within right and we continue to see that and and i put it for example melanchthon who is you know luther's right hand man during the augsburg interim attempted to come to positions that both the lutherans the evangelicals if you will and the roman catholic church could agree upon mm-hmm. um and so there is this there's this kind of attempt to do that i mean really until you get into what is the period of confessionalization mm-hmm. where you get the confessions fully defined and rigid then there is no hope of going back if you will so the, for lutherans the form of Cor- concord in 1580 that is the break point mm-hmm. where we're done but then even then in that whole thing there were these lutheran camps the the super lutherans the nisa lutherans um and then um, the Philippists, those who followed Melanchthon, and they, mm-hmm. they didn't even agree. Mm-hmm. Fif- but 1580 says, well, we're, we're done with messing with things that sound too Catholic, right? right. So very interesting, um, very interesting things are coming about. So at least there's some hope of this during the Reformation. But um, the point I wanted to make with this at the end is there's some groups that are never are never in the discussion of agreement. So, mm-hmm. um, so we have a uh, we have a what we call the magisterial uh, magisterial churches. The Roman Catholic Church is and the Lutherans, the even known as the evangelicals at right, the time, right. and that ultimately the Calvinists will be included in this group by by the end of the Thirty Years' War, sixteen forty eight. They're all okay because they recognize kind of these essential tenets of the faith of which um you know one baptism infant baptism was right. was, was one of the big ones of those right. and of course one of the big ones of these is going to be the trinity mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. but there's fringe groups and i've mentioned them many times before the anabaptists the schwammer the spiritualists and the list goes on um and they are always feared they are always persecuted by Calvinists, Roman Catholics, and, and mm-hmm. Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Um, Non-Trinitarians are part of this group, and they reemerged during the Reformation. It's a whole long thing to say this was considered to be really dangerous to not be, um, to not be Trinitarian, and mm-hmm. Calvin's going to talk a lot about it. So, now... I'm not going to go into all the different groups in the ancient world that held non-Trinitarian Jews, which there were, although these same heresies that were in this era 
Um, again, came up in the Reformation. But know that Calvin dedicates a significant amount of energy in discussing the nature of the Trinity. As he says, quote, Satan, in order to tear our faith from its very roots, has always been instigating great battles, partly concerning the divine essence of the Son and the Spirit, partly concerning the distinction of the persons. Mm. So he is, during nearly all ages, um, keep going, he, is, he has during nearly all ages stirred up ungodly spirits to harry orthodox teachers over this matter, and today also is trying to kindle a new fire from the old embers. For these reasons, it is important here to resist the, the perverse ravings of certain persons. <laughs> Yes, I love it. Gotta love Calvin. That's yeah. the that's the translation, but I think it I think it has a nice ring. It's too bad he can't can't tell us what he really thinks. Yeah, exactly. For Calvin, the fullness of God and Trinity is is necessary to uphold God's sovereignty, and as we know, this is central to Calvin's theology. Well, and really, for me, I, I want to come back to it's it's even more fundamental than God's sovereignty. This is the way God operates in mm-hmm, the world, mm-hmm. and and maybe we can talk more about that in our in our final segment. But I I think, I mean, even the, from a New Testament perspective, this is the way God operates in the mm-hmm. world. Well, and Calvin we saw t- says that yeah. before too, yeah, and right. I, but yeah, that's part of the. I guess to me that fits together with sovereignty as well. Yeah, I mean, sure, but no, yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, additionally, the church fathers confirmed the doctrine of Trinity. And important to the reformers who felt that they better represented the true and ancient church. Mm. So here's another reason, of course. I mean, right. <laughs> not another reason, but I guess it's it's just it's part of the church. What the church well, is but fundamentally. I, I guess if you if you're historically accurate, you'd have to say there were some other church fathers who debated because that's well, where the that's controversies right. that's came where from. That's where the controversies right? came. So <laughs> the doctrine of the Trinity is axiomatically a doctrine that is part of the true church from the reformers' point of view. From yeah. the reformers' point of view. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe our point of view too, right? Yeah, no, I would say so. To go against the doctrine of the Trinity is to go against God. And um, the primary person that Calvin attacks is Michael Servetus. We've met him before. (laughs) We love him. He's the the influencer of the 16th century, right? So remember, he's the Spanish polymath who published materials refuting the Trinity. And, and, And he was super flamboyant he had a reputation he's the guy that showed up in his rich robes and and had the attention of whomever was there i mean he was just a flamboyant guy and he was smart right he 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 was involved in um some um astronomy he was involved in um um how the human body worked i mean he was just involved in geography he was a he was a he was a guy he's a renaissance man right mm-hmm. <laughs> In its truest sense, um, so in many circles, um, his he, he published this stuff on the Trinity, and in many circles, he they would not have published them as local printing shops had control over what was published, but there were always publishers who would print his stuff and make it available, and this especially was in true in Strasbourg. Strasbourg was a pretty liberal place for printing mm. stuff, and there yeah. was always some guy that would print it. It was a pretty liberal in terms of its. Um, in terms of its how it was governed, and, and they just allowed ideas to float pretty freely there. So they print sure. stuff. And believe me, if someone thought they could make a dime off of it, they would right. print it. I right. mean, I have lots of examples of stuff getting out. And this guy is so flamboyant, so fancy. People, people are going to buy this stuff, right? right. So, um, and, and, you know, according to Calvin, this stuff was brazen, and it threatened the power of God. And Servetus advocated for an idea that the spirit was within the human being what moved one's heart 
And Jesus was another being constructed by God, but not God. His ideas made Jesus only a man. Jesus's actions in the world would have no salvific value, meaning that humanity relied only on human activity in response to a God otherwise removed from the human world. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty intense. Yeah. Now, well, and again, I mean, you know, um, a denying Trinity really sort of cuts at the heart of how God is in the world. Right. And again, in our day, when we hear this kind of stuff all the time, it probably, like, eh, we hear it all the time. But um, it would have torn the church apart completely, um, and it would be nothing more than a social club. Yeah. Um, in other words, I understand it as this. Servetus did not read scripture through the eyes of faith, but with a lens of, uh, with a lens of how God is working in this world, but rather through human eyes to look to how humans survive in the world. Mm-hmm. And Calvin writes, quote, how could the human mind measure off the measureless essence of God according to its own little measure? A mind is yet unable to establish for certain the nature of the son's body, though men's eyes daily gaze upon it. <laughs> That's a good point, really, mm-hmm. yeah, I think. I think it is too. Yeah. For Servetus, too much is given to human reason and not enough to God who works in the world and Trinity to guide and sustain us. He is dangerous because his ideas are not only heretical, but can pull people away from their participation mm-hmm. in the working of the world. Well, I mean, what you believe about God inevitably is going to affect what you believe about yourself and about other people mm-hmm. and what you believe about the purpose of life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, and, and I think we, you know, we can talk about this later. I think that's part of one of the biggest problems we have today, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so, that that was the most fun. And and by the way, if you remember, we've talked about Servetus before. He was being um he was being followed and and uh, chased all over Europe by not only not only reformed and Lutherans and Roman Catholics. Everyone wanted him dead. And he eventually dies actually at the hands of Calvin, which becomes kind of a a big deal or at I should say at Geneva. But he shows up there in with a false name but again this guy's so flamboyant mm-hmm. he's not really hiding because he he's a guy at the time and calvin's actually really sometimes um put to test about this and i don't think it's quite fair because he was he was a man that was he there was a, a hunt out for this guy he was sure. considered that dangerous and it's not today yeah, <laughs> it's right. not how we deal with people today right right, but, right. um so a second use of the scripture is to empower the pastors. And so even though this was a command for the apostles, um, but it is true of all who followed that they were to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments of all the pastors. The role of the pastor, says Calvin, is not just to hold the title, but to do the work. Um, And Calvin's responding to one of the great problems of the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval church, which is the role of pastor in name, but not in duty. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was a a, a good problem of the church. There had been quite a long practice of giving pastorates and offices a higher way without actually having someone do the work. Yeah, I mean, they would would actually buy the offices. They would buy the offices, Mm -hmm. or they would um, give somebody that title, but that person wouldn't actually... It never actually even learned the appropriate words. I mean, mm. there's just a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of issues there. And for to the credit of the Roman Catholic Church, they were aware of those problems. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it's easy to fix. Right. Um, so one of the other interesting places is in the charge to the apostles to baptize. 
This, according to Calvin, is in part of a fulfillment of the Old Testament, where in the Old Testament, the believers were circumcised, and here they are baptized. (laughs) (laughs) Likewise, the sacrifices of the Jews were replaced by the Lord's Supper. Now, I've heard this before. I've heard people cite it before, but I think Calvin is trying to show us the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that there are now signs and seals of God's presence with us that replace those in the Old Testament. I've always wondered why he thought that circumcision and the sacrifices were so important to be maintained. I mean, Paul makes this long argument I, yeah. in Romans about how circumcision means nothing, you know, without a change of heart. I, you know? Yeah, I, kind I just, of. I just, uh, to me, it's always felt like he's really stretching it on this, this one. This is not one of the, the strongest ones, in my opinion, either. Um, as I, I really think it, I think it's just his desire to to show this kind of continuity. Yeah. Which, with, which is something I love, of course. That's mm-hmm. one of the things I love about the Reformed mm-hmm. tradition. I keep thinking in this description of how um, we discuss the Hebrew scriptures versus the Old Testament concept. And here it is that Calvin um, has that Old Testament is not being irrelevant, but is being Mm -hmm. that relationship, that it is Mm -hmm. a predecessor to the covenant. Yeah, for some people, the Old Testament means it's obsolete, and it's it's not not important. Right, right, right. Right. When we've talked about using the problem with the language before, right? Right, right. Um, so baptism in the Lord's Supper, says Calvin, have the same purpose, except that, quote, the former foreshadowed Christ's promise while he was as yet awaited and the latter attest him as already given and revealed. Eh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and finally, um, this scripture is used as a basis, basis for the whole sacrament of baptism and instruction of Christ. And he references this continually in the fourth book, um, I didn't go into it here because I focus more on Trinity, mm-hmm. but I think what is important here is that they are to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God, and because it is an act of God, we trust his validity even if the officiant is inept. And Seems this- like that was, again, that was a concern for the Reformers was, you know, um, is it still a sacrament if the officiant is somehow corrupted right, or, right. or inept? Well, yeah. this was a concern of the Roman Catholic Church. This was, was a it? broad well, concern altogether. Yeah. Was, is is this still meaningful mm-hmm. if the person who does it turns to be, yeah, corrupt? Mm-hmm. And um, this was, and, and for Calvin, I would argue it was important for God's sovereignty. It was important yeah. for, for God to be who God is. Sure, so, sure. Um, Anyway, that's that's what our reformer had to say. All right, thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back, and during our break, Alan and I started talking about what Trinity is. I mean, when we when we really come right down to our our worship of God and how Trinity, how we understand God and Trinity. And so I was going to let Alan tell you kind of some of the things he was sharing with me. All right. Thanks, Christy. Yeah. So surprise, surprise, my, my view of, of the Trinitarian notions in the New Testament is, is primarily functional um, because that's the way I perceive uh, New Testament theology. It's primarily functional in terms of who God is and, and who Christ is. And, and it's about what how they re- reveal themselves more than it is about sort of an ontological kind of approach to to who they are. But um, in my reading of the New Testament, the, 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 the points of the, the point of Trinity is, number one, we can truly know who God is through Jesus Christ, because Jesus mm-hmm. Christ truly 
shows us who God is. Um, number two, we can truly know that God is for us because of Jesus' death and mm-hmm. resurrection. And then number three, we can truly know that God is with us because of the incarnation, but also mm-hmm. then because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, again, we may think, well, yeah, duh, of course, God is God. We know God. We, we know God is for us. We know God is with us. But I don't think in this day and time, those are things that we want to take for granted because it seems to me that's sort of the very point. It's really kind of the essence of what right. Servetus was talking about, right? Because, you know, is, is God a God that we know who is working with us, who is for us and, and with right. us in right. the present time? Or is God a God who, you know, is otherwise removed from the human world? Right. You know, I'm, I'm, and Jesus, Jesus' death had no salvific significance right. whatsoever. Right. Uh, you know, that that's... I mean, we can debate theories of the atonement all day long, and, and, and there's some of them that I don't really favor, uh, I'm sure other, you either, or, or some of our listeners as well. Mm-hmm. But um, to say that Jesus' death shows us that God is for us, I think is something that is we can all agree on. Mm-hmm. And to say that Jesus' incarnation and that the Spirit's presence shows us that God is with us mm-hmm. also is something that is crucial for us in our understanding of God. This right. is how well, God operates in the right, world. Right, right, right. And I, I, I remember uh, somebody teaching a confirmation class talking about how you know, Jesus is God with us, showing us, I mean, without Jesus, we, and, and Calvin says this too, we don't really know who God is. I mean, Jesus, and I guess in my framing, the ontological version, if we, that from the beginning, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because, yes, yes. Because, I can't, we can't fully ever, we could never understand who God is without, without Jesus. And because Jesus mm-hmm. is God, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's, the, and of course, all revealed to us in scripture, you know, Calvin's like, look, there's, we can have intimations of God without Jesus in nature, for example. Right. And, or in, in the prophets. In the prophets. Um, but that's not, that is not the same as. Well, it's. It's the affirmation of Hebrews, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in many and various ways, God revealed himself to the, to the ancients, uh, but now he has revealed himself in his son. Right, right. And, right. and, and the idea is that, the, that, the, that God's self-disclosure is made complete in Christ. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I used to focus on my, my own kind of theological things really thinking about well why did jesus come when jesus come and i wanted to have some kind of historical validity for that particular time and and actually my mind worked through that pretty well i mean um uh mentally in terms of a, the, a kind of connectivity of humanity that existed within the roman empire which we now know really is is everywhere um in, in terms historically, mm-hmm. historically, and also with the developed, um, the development of, of God's relationship through Hebrew scripture. But it, but to me, it had to, I had to understand God in Trinity, you know, in order to fully, um, to fully understand how that could work. In other words, accepting that God, that Jesus was present with God and the Holy Spirit from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I I would agree with that. I mean, I to me that functional understanding of Trinity, I think But I love that. I I I 
I take that. I believe the functional, the the functional view of Trinity is is no different from what we would consider to be an ontological trinity. Who God has been from eternity past and who God will be to eternity. And what does that mean for us? Well, yeah, yeah. I, I know God is is with us. That, right. that God is in, is a champion right. for me, and that's that's huge, right? Yeah, and yeah. yeah, that that that's huge. And and I think for me too is when I think of God, and when I think of God as creating us out of love, um, mm-hmm. and God is love. You know, and I always think about and that, that love starts in the trinitarian and relationship. That's what exactly because <laughs> love has to have it has to have an object, right? right? It has to have another. Yeah, a transitive verb, so it has to have that. So, yeah. yeah, it's 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 a kind of a big deal in and throughout what it is, and I think people, I think people really do the work, the theology of it. Then it makes sense, yeah. you know. I I think, yeah, I, I I'm 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 frustrated today because I just read a, a post by an acquaintance that, you know, was this, it was some kind of um, angry atheist post about mm. how God isn't real, but love is. And I'm like, that is just, <laughs> I, I, I thought responding and because there was so much wrong with that post right. from the inceptually, from, from axiomatically, right? right? This didn't make any sense at all because if God is love, which God is love, then you, yeah. you just can't Where make does that love statement. Even come from? Yeah, you yeah. can't even make that statement. I'm just like it was just dumb. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I I take that, and so I apply it to my functional categories. You know, okay, so if we can't know that God is with us, what does that do to our quality of life? What does that do to yeah. our our sense of purpose as Christians or even as the church? If we can't know that God is for us, what does that do to our quality oh. of life? What does that do to our sense of purpose as Christians? Right. Right. If we can't right. even trust that we know who God is. I mean, obviously we don't know exhaustively who God is, but if we can't trust that our understanding of God through Jesus is an accurate and reliable one, how does that affect our personal existence? How does that affect our purpose as Christians and as a church? I mean, it puts a huge question mark over everything. Well, because it ultimately leads to, well, I can't trust any of it. So the only thing I can trust is me. And you get this very mm-hmm. selfish individual look at the world and frankly, pessimistic at the same time, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Um, if you truly, if you truly process love, then in my opinion, you have to process God too. Well, I think about, I think about, you know, people like um, Sartre or Camus or, or Ayn Rand and you know, just the 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 very you know they 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 start from that premise of no God, and that we're just we just have to find whatever meaning we can find in this world, mm-hmm. and it's a very dark, it's a and dark place very to be, desperate and just very. It can turn in on itself very selfishly, oh, and it's just it's it's. I mean, <laughs> what is the appeal there? I don't know. I uh, mean, I, I think I think for them, Sartre and Camus might say, well, we're being. We're being bravely honest about man's reality in the world, but um, you know it's well, a pretty it's a pretty bleak existence. It, if that's is, what it is. It is. It is. And I always find it interesting as all these folks that want to prove to me that God doesn't exist, and I'm like, your whole premise doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. I said the fact that you can even you can even articulate God to me says you've already acknowledged right. God exists, right? Right. Right. <laughs> right. 
Right. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and therefore, you're looking yeah. in the wrong places and you're asking yeah. the wrong questions. And if you're really looking for how to live and yeah. you're really looking for an answer to why am I here, then you're looking, you're looking in the wrong space. Surely. Yeah. Surely. Yeah, because, because that's really what Jesus... That's the role of Jesus in the New Testament. That's mm-hmm. the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That's the role of God the Father in the New Testament is to to give us life that is purposeful and meaningful. Um, it's not going to be, you know, one of, one of the things I, I, I wrestle with, uh, have wrestled with for, for decades is the whole concept of eternal life in John's gospel and, and abundant life. And the way people have, have framed abundant life, it makes it almost like, well, if you're a believer, then you have this Pollyannish existence and you're never going to be touched by suffering. Right. That's not no, true. That's not that's true not at true. all. Uh-uh. My reading of John's gospel is that the point of eternal life is that we, the point of eternal life that we have now is that we get to be embraced in the relationship of love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have shared eternally. And to me, I mean, that's huge. Um, uh, you know, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. because we, get to, we, get to, we get to share in this love. We Absolutely. get to experience yes, this love yes. already now. Right. We don't have to wait until we're in God's presence. We don't have to wait until we're at right. the feet of Jesus. We already get to have that now. And again, it just comes back to those three questions. Can we know, can we, can we, can we trust that we know God reliably? Can we, can we trust that God is for us? Can we trust that God is with us? And I think Trinity addresses all right. of those. This right. is just simply the way God operates yeah, in the world. Exactly. And what I love, I mean, what I love is, do I have doubts sometimes? Yeah. Of course. So did the disciples. Yeah. You know, we did that yeah, today. Right? But when I live into that and I trust even even in my doubt I trust Mm -hmm. it makes life so much richer it makes the roses redder and the sky bluer and my relationships more joyful and I look at every I look at the world with hope and the person I meet in the store as 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 a friend and instead of a foe and it just changes how I approach my life well and for me Part of it means that I always have a home in the love of God. Yes. I always have a home in the love of God. And if if I can then live in that safety and security of my home in the love of God, then, right, it's the people I meet are friends. You know, the sky mm-hmm. is bluer, the roses are redder, you know, then and you have hope and you have the joy. Maybe not all the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we all have bad days. But, right. But... You know, nevertheless, you know, there is this, it, it makes a difference. It, it does. What you believe about who God is makes a difference in how you live your life. I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Alan. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.